0: You are about to take part in a session from a Discipleship Bible School held at YWAM Richmond in the spring of 2022, and we are so grateful you are here. So much prayer went into every element of this course, from recruitment to content editing, and we are convinced you will leave this knowing God a little deeper. The Discipleship Bible School, or DBS, is an opportunity to survey the entirety of scripture to discover God's redemptive plan for all of humanity. Over the course of 12 weeks, teachers explored the Bible section by section, not only to deepen students' understanding of what was written then, but reveal what we are being invited into now. If you like what you are hearing, visit ywamva.org to discover what courses we are offering, ways you can journey with our team, and other content created to help you know God and make him known. Everything you hear was created as a step of faith by a team of YWAMers and volunteers who felt God inviting them to capture the DBS in its entirety, over 120 hours of content. If this content blesses you, consider supporting future schools and content by giving at ywamrichmond.org slash donate. Thank you so much for listening, and we can't wait for you to experience God today.
1: Okay, well... How is everybody this afternoon? I always want to say this morning, because that's what I always teach. But um, how is everybody this afternoon? You awake? You ready? Okay.
2: Yeah,
1: if you're not, <laughs> oh. He's over here hitting himself. <laughs> like, oh, gosh. <laughs> Whatever you got right. to do stay awake. Right. <laughs> oh. Okay, well, I gave you a little forewarning yesterday that... At the beginning of class today, I would ask you all uh, to share a little bit about what you learned yesterday, what was sticking out to you, what um, you found interesting, you found encouraging, whatever you want to share. I don't want to put too many parameters around it, but uh, just to share with one another what you're learning, what's um, what has been important to you so far, so... We'll give you a moment to look over your notes. And you will realize we're on day two from my PowerPoint. Right. So, yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Um, I really enjoyed hearing
2: like, the significance of each sacrifice. Mm-hmm. And what Mm-hmm. To understand and have it written out in front of very visual. Um, yeah. That was, it definitely in a little
1: bit deeper. Good. Good, good. Thank you for sharing. Yeah. Those offerings and those, you're just like, what? <laughs> I don't get it. But, yeah, when you start to realize the importance of them and, and why they were there, yeah, it makes much more sense. So, good job. Who else?
3: The way you described worship, I guess I grew up it a little differently, but this perspective was to me. We worship him for our sake, not his sake. Um, mm-hmm. When we worship him, we become more like him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Mhm. So, yeah. 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 I mean, our our worship. I've I've been very guilty of just coming in and singing, and you know, okay, that was that. That was good. But to get the full extent of it, yeah, realizing that we worship Him, so that we are fully more of who he created us to be. But it's still giving him the honor and the glory and the praise. And so, but yeah, why we worship is so important. Yeah. Thank you for sharing. Anybody else? It
3: was interesting the word
1: It's all about relationship. Yeah. In Leviticus. It can become lost in that with all the all the sacrifices and all the things that they had to do, but it is all about the relationship with the Lord. So yes. Good job. Okay. Anybody else?
2: They kissed or if it was kind of at the opening, but you shared about like coming in a posture where you can feel and experience like love or security mm-hmm. or acceptance, worthiness being chosen mm-hmm. versus the you know, the you know, the contrary and so mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. you know, to this moment, yeah. and, and what state are we really walking in here in? Mm-hmm. Sometimes it can be just easy to race to get here and just be happy, that you don't have to do the, the funny dance. Yeah. Know, free and light. <laughs> uh, but sometimes our hearts are not always prepared. But also, I thought in some ways you're, like you sharing that, was kind of a cautionary tale, too. And it's like, these are the things that you could be walking in here. hmm
1: Yes, that was just even starting out. <laughs> but yeah, before we even get into the book. But yeah, I really, I mean, I know that the world is constantly telling us who the world wants us to be and how they want us to interact with people. And so, um, but yeah, really thinking about the fruit of the Spirit, what the Lord offers to us. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And all of those things are something that we can walk in daily if we take the opportunity to release the things that are are not those. And so walking in the the fruit of the Spirit in a full identity and that we have the, the choice every day to do that. I know I don't make that wise choice every day, but I... Try, (laughs) and that's all we can do, yeah. Okay, anybody else? This is good feedback, I like it. I like hearing from you guys. Okay. (laughs) He's like, don't put me on the spot. (laughs) Okay, well, we will start with the lecture then. And what I hope to cover today, time willing, is uh, we're going to talk about, I know we went into holiness yesterday, but I'm going to go into the concepts of holiness and cleanness. And then we're going to talk about the Day of Atonement. Uh, Then we're going to go into the last, well not, the chapter 17 through 25, which is the holiness code. And then talk about covenant blessings and curses. And then how does the Old Testament apply to New Testament believers? So, we've got quite a bit to go through today. Are you all ready? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So, I want to start out with chapter, uh, well, 8 through 10 is really talking about um, the consecration of Aaron, his sons as the priest, and the tabernacle. All this all this is taking place in these chapters 8 through 10. Okay. And this is what was commanded in Exodus. So we learned yesterday about how Leviticus really is uh, bringing to fruition and to not completion, but um, enacting all of the things that God set up in Exodus already for them. So Exodus 29, I will flip there while you all take notes. 29 verse 4 Says, present Aaron and his sons at the entrance of the tabernacle and wash them with water. So that's and then it goes on, dress Aaron in his priestly garments, the tunic, the robe, um, put the ephod itself on him, the breast, the breast piece, uh, place the turban on his head. So these are all the things that in Exodus 29, God was asking them to do. And now when we look at chapter 9 of Leviticus, if we go to even verse 1, it says, After the ordination ceremony on the eighth day, Moses called together Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel. And so he, they're, they're starting the ceremony. They're going to begin to really bring about the things that were in, or instructed in Exodus. So if we go to verse 7 of chapter 9, it says, Then Moses said to Aaron, come to the altar and sacrifice your sin offering and your burnt offering to purify yourself and the people. Then present the offering to the people to purify them, making them right with the Lord, just as he has commanded. And then if we flip over to verses 22 through 24, it says, after that, so after you know the uh, Aaron went to the altar and slaughtered the calf and then he slaughtered the animal for the burnt offering, and then he presented the offerings to the people. And then he slaughtered the bull and the ram for the people's peace offering. So he's going through all the sacrifices, okay? That's what's happening in these verses that I'm not really going to read in completion for you. But then if we go to verse 22, we see that after that, so after all of the sacrifices have taken place, Aaron raises his hands toward the people and bless them. Then after presenting the sin offering, the burnt offering, and the peace offering, he stepped down from the altar. Then Moses and Aaron went into the tabernacle, and when they came back out, they blessed the people again, and the glory of the Lord appeared to the whole community. Fire blazed forth from the Lord's presence and consumed the burnt offering and the fat on the altar. And when the people saw this, they shouted with joy and fell face down on the ground. I mean, can you just begin to visualize that for yourself? What that situation would have been like to be present there. To have gone through these sacrifices, and then you see the glory of the Lord appear to the whole community. It wasn't just to Moses and Aaron, it says the whole community. And so then they fell face down and worshiped and shouted because they saw the glory of the Lord and the fire blazed forth and consuming the burnt offering. I mean, bless you. That is incredible. Can you all I, I just I'm trying to wrap my head around what that would be like to be there and to see fire come down and consume this burnt offering that you've you've just given to the Lord? Incredible. And so this is this is what's setting the stage for what we're going to read next, okay so, We've seen the glory of the Lord fall. This has been incredible, okay? And then, starting in chapter 10, Aaron's sons, Nadab, Abihu, or Abihu, however you say it, put coals of fire in their incense burners and sprinkled incense over them. In this way, they disobeyed the Lord by burning before him the wrong kind of fire, different than he had commanded. So fire blazed forth from the Lord's presence and burned them up. And they died there before the Lord. Does that seem a little bit much? I mean, all they did was take some incense and sprinkled it and burned it, and they died. So I ask, why were these two consumed by fire? Because they, were they were disobedient. Yeah. When I first read this, I was I was like, that is a lot to to take in. Like the death of two people because they burned the wrong incense. So I want to present to you, though, that it was a little bit more than just a little bit of incense, the wrong fire, that kind of thing. Because for me, when I think about these actions, I think about why would God be so harsh, because that's my that was my first perspective of him when I read this. It was why is God so harsh? Why is He acting so? It seemed like it was a very maybe irrational thing to do in a sense. And not that God isn't God and He can do whatever He wants, but I wanted to understand more. And so when you really begin to look at this passage, you see that. Unfortunately, everything they did was wrong. So if we look, it was that they were the wrong people. It should have been the high priest that was taking this incense, that was burning this. And so they were priests because they were Aaron's sons, but they were not the high priest. Okay? Then also it was the wrong instrument. They did not use the high priest censer. So this was, they were using their own. This was not anything that, um, this was their own incense burners. And so once again, because they were not the high priest, they didn't have the right censer. It was the wrong time. The only time that they were to do this was on the day of atonement. And it was not the day of atonement yet. They had the wrong authority. They didn't consult God. They didn't consult Moses. They didn't consult Aaron. They sort of just did it on their own. And so they were going against sort of the protocol, if you would say, that was set up in place. And they used the wrong fire. It was not the brazen fire from the altar. And then they had the wrong motive. They did not seek to glorify God alone. And then lastly, they had the wrong kind of, I'll say, energy or spirit. Um, at, the, at the end of, well, not necessarily the end, but later on in the chapter, you see that um, in verse 9 it says, You and your descendants must never drink wine or any other alcoholic drink before going into the tabernacle. If you do, you will die. This is a permanent law for you, and you must be, it must be observed from generation to generation. And so from that, I am deducing that they went into the altar uh, being fueled with another kind of spirit than the Holy Spirit. And then this was made that they would not be able to drink an alcoholic drink and go into the tabernacle. And so we when we look at the instance that just took place where the glory of the Lord fell, that the presence of God was with them. And then Nadab and Abihu, they go and do all of these things. And still you might be thinking, wow, that's a little bit harsh, knowing that all of these things were done wrong. But I want to present to you that they were the priests. They were a part of the priesthood. They were the ones to set the example for the community. They were the ones that were to uphold the law so that the community would know how to come into the presence of the Lord, that they would know how to be in relationship with the Lord. And so this example that they set, I think, was one that needed to be, unfortunately, it was so bad that it needed to be corrected in the ways that God corrected them. Because if he had said, oh, you know, it's okay, we'll forgive you this time, then what would have happened next? I mean, those those are what ifs. We don't know because God didn't allow them to do it again. But I just think about what would have happened if God had allowed them to live and then what the state of the community would have looked like if this had not been, um, I don't want to say nipped in the bud, but like if it hadn't have been stopped when it was. Because their, their position as priest was one to not be taken lightly. It wasn't something that you could just dally with and say, oh, well, I can do it like this, though. You know, God will still be okay. And so I just want to ask, like, are we doing that in our own lives? Are we taking the things of the Word of God and are we saying, oh, but I can still do this over here. Even though I'm a Christian, even though I follow the Lord, He's going to forgive me. Like, I'm okay, I'm under grace. But is it really okay? Because we serve a God who is holy, who is righteous, and who deserves the honor and the glory and the praise. So we can dumb down the truth but it's still the truth, whether you obey it or not. And so I want to always remember Aaron's sons because I don't want to be so flippant with God and with his ways because he is holy. And so I have a Bible project video that I want to show you on holiness. I know we all all like Bible project. So, um but yeah, because he is holy, we need to serve him and the priest needed to serve him in the ways that they had he had instructed them. It wasn't that we go and do our own thing because, oh, it's okay, God'll forgive us. No, we do, we follow him because he knows what is best.
2: Uh, I love love that you use that example. Did you guys all come across that in the reading and be like, what? There's actually a number of times when that's going to happen, like throughout the next several books. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so it would seem if they got all of these things wrong, it wasn't just like, oops, I grabbed the wrong candle or whatever it was. You had a reckless and careless attitude about the whole thing, Mm -hmm. and his response was severe. Um, In many ways, for others, not just for the sake of the two, but for for everyone that was going to come after them. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, That's good. Thank you. Any questions or more comments? before we show the video? Okay. Well, let's start this. I think I need to push it again. Oh no, there's no sound. Okay. (laughs) Well, let me go back then. Do you mean to try it now? Yeah, no. Nope. Still nothing. It's going
2: slowly.
1: I, think I just turned it back so it would. Oh, you did. Yeah. Oh, I. You may try it again. Please. Oops. No. Nope. Wrong way. No. I don't think there's anything on my part. I've got it turned up. I've got it. It's all the way up. And then, yeah, I don't think there's. I didn't even know we did all that stuff.
3: So. <laughs>
4: oh,
1: <laughs> I'm like, they got it. <laughs> Oh, I hear it. Yeah, yeah. What it's really describing is how God but that's back there. Right? <laughs> <laughs> the <water laughs>
4: the I'm, like, I'm like, I hear oh, it. <laughs>
1: You can take this opportunity to dance around if you like, if you <laughs> get up. And- <laughs> Yes. All
3: right, guys, you choose. You want the video (laughs) or
1: the sound? (laughs) The sound.
4: heard the word of holy before, or at least sang it in a church song once or twice. And for most people, this idea is really just connected to being a morally good person. So God is holy because he's morally perfect. Yeah, that is part of it. But in the Bible, the idea of holiness is even bigger and more rich. What it's really describing is how God is the creative force behind the whole universe. He's the one and only being with the power to make a world full of such beauty and life. And so all these abilities, they make God utterly unique, which is the meaning of the word holy. So a helpful way to think about God's holiness is by using the sun as a metaphor. The sun is unique, at least within our solar system. And it's really powerful It's the source of all this beautiful life on our planet. And so you could say that the sun is holy. And you can actually take this metaphor even further in that the whole area around the sun is also holy. Yeah, because the closer you get to the sun, the more intense it gets. Yeah, exactly. So that very power and goodness that generates all this life is also dangerous. I mean, the sun, if you get too close, will annihilate you. And in the same way, there's this paradox at the heart of God's own holiness. Because if you're impure, his presence is dangerous to you. And not because it's bad, but because it's so good. And so the first time we see this paradox of God's holiness, it's in the story of Moses and the burning bush. So God tells Moses to take off his sandals because he's standing on holy ground. And Moses covers his face in fear, and God says, hey, don't come any closer. It's intense. It's actually that intensity of God's holiness that's explored even more in the stories about Israel's temple, which was the main place where God's holy presence was located. And at the center of the temple was this room called the most holy place, the hot spot of God's presence. And whether you're an Israelite living in the land around the temple, or a priest working right in the temple, you're in proximity to God's holy presence, which is dangerous. Yeah, this is a problem. So, how's it supposed to work? Well, in the Bible, the solution is that you need to become pure. So, like being morally pure. Yeah, and that's easy enough to understand. But the Bible spends a lot of time talking about another kind of purity, being ritually pure which is a state where you separate yourself from anything related to death, like touching things like diseased skin or dead bodies or even certain bodily fluids. All these make you impure. And becoming ritually impure isn't necessarily sinful. What's wrong is waltzing into God's presence when you're in an impure state. And so that's why God gave the Israelites very clear instructions for knowing when they were impure, steps to become pure, so that they could go into the temple again. So that's what the book of Leviticus is about. Right. But it doesn't stop there. This idea keeps developing. So later in the scriptures, we find this really interesting story by a prophet named Isaiah. And he has this crazy vision where he's in the
0: temple and he's right in God's presence. He's totally terrified. Yeah, he knows the rules.
4: He shouldn't even be in there. And he's worried about being destroyed. And then this crazy creature called a seraphim. Yeah, that is a crazy creature. <laughs> totally. So it flies over with a hot and then it sears Isaiah's lips with the coal and says something really weird. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. So this burning coal somehow makes Isaiah pure. Yeah, it's remarkable because normally if you touch something impure, it transfers its impurity to you. But now here's this new idea where you have this coal, this very holy and pure object, and it touches Isaiah and it transfers its purity to him. Isaiah is not destroyed by God's holiness. He's transformed by it. I mean, the implications of this are just huge. But there's one more development, this time from another prophet, Ezekiel. And he has this vision where he's standing at the temple, and he sees water trickling out from it. And then that water turns into a stream, and then it grows into a deep river that starts flowing through the desert, leaving this trail of green trees behind it, and then it flows into the Dead Sea, making everything fresh and alive. So instead of becoming pure first and then going into the temple, here God's holiness comes out from the temple, making things pure and bringing them to life. What does it all mean? We don't know, until we meet this man, Jesus, and he claims that he's fulfilling all of these ancient visions, but in surprising new ways. So Jesus, he went around touching people who are impure. People with skin diseases, a, a woman with chronic bleeding or dead people. And when he touches them, their impurity should transfer over to Jesus, but instead Jesus's purity transfers to them and actually heals their bodies. Jesus is like that holy coal in Isaiah's vision. Right. And Jesus claimed that he was the human embodiment of God's own holiness. And that he and his followers were now God's temple. So that through them, God's holy presence would go out into the world and bring life and healing and hope. And so this is why Jesus described his followers as having streams of living water flowing out of them. So this is our part of the story where we find ourselves now. But where is this all heading? So the last pages of the Bible end with a final vision about God's holiness. This time it's by a guy named John. And in his vision, we see the whole world made completely new. The entire earth has become God's temple. And Ezekiel's river is there, flowing out of God's presence, immersing all of creation, removing all impurity, and bringing everything back to life. We believe the Bible is one complete narrative, so we're making these...
1: Okay. would you all hear from that video? Hmm? Did you say something? Oh, hi there. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) I
3: am not going to look at that again.
1: (laughs) Okay. Okay, good. Shoo, I'd rather see that there. <laughs> uh, okay, so what did you all uh, pick up from that video?
3: Yeah? Okay, it's cool to see that the sun analogy, especially when like you get closer and closer, it's going to kill you. God's holiness can kill you. And it's mm-hmm. Wants to. is just that he's just that good and really hot. Mm-hmm. But then the opposite effect starts to happen when the construction of the tabernacle and the um, laws start to make bridges so that God's holiness actually touches them. Mm-hmm. And so that correlation. And then that, it starts to go down into God's redemptive plan Isaiah, Ezekiel, all the way down to Jesus. And mm-hmm. then the coal mm-hmm. now.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, good. Thank you for sharing. Anybody else? Okay. Well, uh, I really like the Bible Project videos just because they summarize things very well. They put in a nice little package for us. And so, especially with this word holiness and you know, even yesterday talking about um, sin and impurity, and like, I think they went into a lot of good, it just had a lot of good information in there, and we will talk more today about holiness, and because this will really start this great theme for us, um, because even in ten uh, 1010, where it talks about Uh, You must distinguish between what is sacred and what is common, between what is ceremonially unclean and what is clean. And you must teach the Israelites all the decrees that the Lord has given them through Moses. And so when we are thinking about this holiness, you know, holiness is linked with wholeness. Perfection of God causes the fear of God on the people. And so holiness is being set apart. It's about being distinct, to be different from the common. So when we think about God and we think about him in his character and nature, that he is distinct. He is set apart. He is different from anything else, okay? And so I read this, I already read uh verse 10, in Leviticus 10. And so I want to really go into breaking down holiness and cleanness, okay? So we see that we have this uh, spectrum here, and it shows that holiness is on your left, yes? Um, then clean is in the middle, and then unclean is on the right, okay? Okay. So I want you to sort of think about this, keep this little diagram in your mind as we're going through these next uh, few slides that I'm gonna talk about, okay? Um, And you'll understand, hopefully, more of why I've set it up like this when I'm finished talking about it. So with these these, uh, chapters that are following chapter 10, so 11 through 15, really are these purity and impurity laws that we're going to be coming into contact with. And so the basic premise behind the impurity laws is that God is holy and therefore his people must prepare themselves to enter into his presence. So that's what all this is about. So chapter 11, uh, when we were reading through that, really goes into their diet. I have here, it's just the food list of certain foods that are unclean, certain foods that are clean. And really, we aren't given the real reasons why they're either clean or unclean, but we have to trust that the Lord had His own reasoning behind why some are clean and some are unclean. And then if you move on to chapters fourteen or 12 through 14, we see that these are the chapters on childbirth, And on some of the diseases that require cleansing um, to be restored back to purity. And then, chapter 15 is talking about bodily discharge in regard to being unclean. Okay? So, all of these chapters are really talking about this whole concept of pure and impure what makes you impure, what makes you, what is pure, what you can do, what you can't do. And so, um, and even I will say with chapter fifteen, a lot of the uh, bodily discharges probably were only unclean because they were considered unsanitary. So, um, so these next these chapters are all pertaining to, you know, how to be holy because God is holy, and so He is giving them in, the instructions on what food to eat so that they can remain in cleanliness, and then what to do if there is a skin disease. But I want to make you aware of something that being unclean does not mean sinful, okay? So it deals with their state of being able to enter God's presence. So just because they are unclean doesn't mean that they are sinful, so there is that distinction, okay? Does that make sense? Okay. So certain events make someone ceremonially unclean. So but just because you're ceremonially unclean doesn't mean that you are living in sin. And so we through these chapters what really emerges is that God is holy and we see this even in Leviticus chapter 11. It says, For I am the Lord your God. Sanctify yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. You must not defile yourselves with any swarming creature that moves on the ground. For I am the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God, and you shall be holy, for I am holy. And then we go on to see that, you know, over and over again, God is going to just reiterate these things, about his holiness, about who he is. And so in chapter 19, verse 2, speak to, oh, sorry, I touched it the wrong way. It says, speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy for I am the Lord your God, am holy. And so in chapter 20, consecrate yourself, therefore, and be holy for I am the Lord your God. And so over and over again, he is bringing this concept of be holy because I am holy. Come before me in this in this way because I want to be in relationship with you. And so to be set apart is what God is, and that's what he wants for the Israelites. And this is him being just. He is saying, I'm giving these things to you so that we can all live in Unity. We can live as one. And I have here just a little bit of a breakdown because we always say words like justice and mercy and grace and, um, but we don't always know what it's really implying. So to say God is just in these in his actions with these laws about being pure and impure and sinful and you know holy or uh, unclean. So justice is getting what, you, getting what you deserve. And so a lot of times we want people to get their justice. We want to get what they deserve. But mercy is not getting what you deserve. And we know that God is full of mercy. And then grace is getting what you do not deserve. And so God is a God who bestows grace So much he gives out what we do not deserve. And even mercy, not getting what we deserve. Because if we did, we would all be like Nadab and Abihu. We would be burned up and done. And so this concept of holiness and uncleanness through these chapters you know, it can be hard to read because you're just like, okay, they can't eat this thing. They can't do this. They can't, you know, if, um, if a woman becomes pregnant and gives birth to a son, which we talked about yesterday, um, she will be ceremonially unclean for seven days. And then on the eighth day, they would circumcise the son and then waiting 33 days to be purified. And so it's all of these just stipulations that they have to go through. And it's because this holiness and uncleanness, these are two opposites that are not compatible. Okay, so no one or no thing can be both at the same time. You cannot be holy and you cannot be unclean at the same time. You're either one or the other. And so no holy person or thing is permitted to come into contact with anything that is no holy person can come into contact with anything that is unclean. And so there was this constant state of being aware of what state you were in, whether you were holy, whether you were unclean, whether you were clean. And so this sacrificial system is a way for those who are unclean to become clean and pure. Because God is not someone who is going to say, okay, these things make you unclean and... Oh, well, just so be it, such is life. Sorry about you. That's not who God is. That's not how he operates. And so he is constantly telling them, okay, this is what makes you unclean, but this is what you need to do to be able to come back into my presence. And so for the food, health, sanitation, all of these things are aimed at showing that people belong to God and reflect his purity. Okay. And so all of these laws are ways for the people to come back into unity with the Lord. And so when we are thinking about holiness and uncleanness, these things are active. It isn't that you just stay in one camp. Like if you're unclean, like I said, God's not just going to be like, well, sorry about you. You're going to have to stay there. These things are active. They're constantly moving and so they can transmit their nature to other people and objects except those that are unclean permanently. So holiness, as you saw in the video, when God touched something, when the, when the coal was touched to Isaiah's lips, he became clean. He became holy. But the same thing is true. If, they, if he went and touched a dead body, then he would be unclean. So these things are constantly... Uh, active. It's not that you're just in one state of being clean and you're clean forever. That's not how it works. And so a clean person or object cannot transmit its nature. So just because, say, this bottle's clean, if I touch it, it's not meaning that I am now clean. So it cannot transmit its nature to me. And a clean person really is living in this constant struggle between this holiness and uncleanness. And this is especially true for the priest because they are the ones that are constantly going into the tabernacle. They are the ones that are burning the offerings. They're the ones that are making atonement on behalf of the people. And so they need to be aware of their own state. And so it's important to note that clean, once again in this context, means acceptable to God in worship. So clean is acceptable to God in worship and unclean means unacceptable or banned from the tabernacle or even from the camp. So there are these stipulations that are set up so that they will understand what is right and true and holy for them to be abiding in. And when we think about this word unclean, you know, it's not something that Us as Christians, that we use a lot. We're not gonna go around and be like, oh, I'm unclean, don't come near me. You know, as like in the Old Testament when they were unclean and they had to shout out, unclean, unclean. Like you would know if someone was unclean. But now we don't really have this in our vocabulary. And the reason is, is because a lot of these things are in the Old Covenant, they are a part of this covenant that was made with specifically the Israelites. And really, if we look to the New Testament, we see that in Mark, you know, Jesus declared all food clean. So we don't have this, you know, of you may not eat any of the following animals, those that have the split hooves that chew the cud, not or but not both. The camel chews the cud. And so, like we don't have to abide by that anymore which I'm so grateful for because I like to eat bacon in the mornings. <laughs> really all the time, but. Um, and bacon was something that was unclean for them. It wasn't kosher. And so it was something that they had to refrain from. And so Jesus is saying in Mark seven nineteen that all foods are clean. And so I will um, turn there quickly. Um, Mark. Uh, So what's happening is if we just go a little bit before that Jesus went into a house to get away from the crowd And his disciples asked him what he meant by the parable he had just used And he said, don't you understand either? He asked, can't you see that the food you put into your body cannot defile you? Food doesn't go into your heart, but only passes through the stomach and goes into the sewer. But saying this, he declared that every kind of food is acceptable in God's eyes. And then he goes on to say, and then he added, It is what comes from inside that defiles you, from, for, from within. Out of a person's heart comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, wickedness, deceit, lustful desires, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these vile things come from within. They are what defile you. And so thank you, Jesus, that he declared that all foods are clean. And then also the Holy Spirit declared all foods clean in Peter's vision in Acts 10. And so we have these where This is why we don't use this word so much in our vocabulary because it's not that we have to make the distinction between, oh, don't eat that food because it's not clean, where they did when they were getting these laws. So the clean and unclean rules were about distinguishing the Israelites from other nations. And so as we know, God is in this process of setting them up as a nation he is making them into his people. And this is one of the ways that he wanted to set them apart. He wanted them to be distinct. And so God was in the midst of his people and only when the people were clean could they draw near to God. And so these were the ways that he was setting them up for success. He was saying, I want you to come near to me. So in to be able to do that you need to follow these restrictions or these laws, whatever, however you want to call it. And so when we're thinking about the, um, the spectrum that I started out with, this holy, then clean and unclean, this may seem a little bit like, I don't understand this, but I'm going to explain it to you. So when you have, um, when you're unclean, so if we start on the right, The way to become clean and move over to being holy is that you have to cleanse, you have to offer sacrifices, and then you're sanctified and you're made holy. So that's why I have these arrows going to the left. But then if you are holy and there is sin, so there's, you profane, you know, there's pollution, there's sin and infirmity, So to become clean, so you go from holy to unclean. So sin and infirmity takes you from holiness all the way over to unclean. So it's, in a sense, I sort of see it as a cycle that goes around and around and around and around because you're constantly in this state of going from clean to unclean to holy to holy, you know, so it's constantly you're in this active dynamic state. So it's never that you just stay over here in holiness, but you don't always just stay being unclean either. But, and you don't just stay being clean. So, but there, there are ways to move from each, I guess, aspect on this diagram. And so with this, the, the Lord is really saying to be holy Go through the cleansing, the sacrifices. Do these things that I've set out for you because I want to dwell with you. So, okay. Does everybody understand, now that I've marked all this up, um, (laughs) but do you understand this, that, you know, being holy is really the goal, but there are things that made them unclean that they had to go through to then come back to being holy. And so, you know, for us, if you go out and play in the mud and all that kind of stuff, you just go take a shower. If you're you're dirty, you just go take a shower. But for them, they couldn't do that. It wasn't just as easy as like, oh, let me go wash off and I'll be fine. They had to separate themselves from the community. And that would either be, you know, they would go outside the camp. So there would be this separation for them. There would be a passage of time that would take place. They would either have to separate until the evening, or sometimes it would be up to seven days that they would have to go and be away from the community. And then they would wash themselves. They would wash their body. They would wash their garments. They would wash whatever was unclean. So it could be their saddle, a chair, you know, anything that was contaminated. And then sometimes they would have to offer a purification offering to then be able to come back into the camp. And so this was a much more bigger concept for them than it is for us. I think a lot of times even when we sin. I think it's hard for us to even come before the Lord and sometimes humble ourselves and say, God, I've made a mistake. Like I've done wrong. And so I think that this is a way for them to, it would be a physical way of saying, okay, I am in sin. Where for us today, we don't, I don't know if, I'm not going to say we need to focus so much on our sin, but I think that we need to be aware of our sin more and when we are not walking in holiness. And for this this system with them, it would have been clear for them what was what was holy, what was not, when they were clean and when they were unclean. And the whole thing with this is really being set apart. And so this might have seemed strict, but this was really how God was connecting Israel to the tabernacle, to his character, to his being. He is holy. It's not just something he does. And so they would know when they were unclean and they would be careful about who they came into contact with who they were around, what they were doing. And these laws really would have regulated their life. It would have brought order into what they had had deemed as chaos for years. Because if you don't know what is right and wrong or what is clean and unclean, and now you have these to live by, Once again, I think that would have been a a breath of fresh air, even though for us, it seems like, wow, that is a lot. But for them, it was like, okay, I now know what I can do and what I can't do and what I need to do if I am unclean. And so when we think about this being set apart, if we look at chapter 18, I don't know if when you all read that, you were like, wow, God, okay, because It goes into a lot of you must not have sexual relations with a close relative. Do not violate your father by having sexual relations with your mother. Do not have sexual relations with any of your father's wives. Do not have sexual relations with a sister or half-sister, whether it is your father's daughter or your mother's daughter. Do not have sexual relations with a granddaughter. Do not have sexual relations with a stepsister. Do not have sexual relations with your father's sister. Do not have sexual relations with your mother's sister. Okay, are you getting it? (laughs) He is being very, very specific. And you might ask, okay, why go into so much detail? Why do we need to know who to have sex with and not to have sex with? Well, if we think about where they've come from, what they've been through, they were used and abused. That's As slaves, that's what happens. They didn't have value. They didn't have identity. They were used. And so to be given understanding, and I I think about the corruption that must have been in their lives for God to go into so much detail about who they could have sex with and who they couldn't. If there was that much that he took a whole chapter to tell them who they couldn't have sex with, what they had been living in, and what they had gone through. And so I know that this chapter talks a lot about sex and marriage and who you can and cannot have sex with, who you can and cannot marry. And you may be thinking, why bother? But even if we look at So we we thought about the society for them, but what about for us today? I think that if you go out into the world and you ask people, you know, and I know this is a sensitive subject, but I think it's one that is so important to talk about. Because if God took a whole chapter to educate the Israelites on who they could and could not have sex with, I think it's something that we need to be very, very aware of in our own lives. And sexually transmitted disease is something that is rampant in our world right now. And why is that? It's because people are sleeping with whoever they want. If they had obeyed the law, this would have brought protection to them. They wouldn't have had to worry about disease or about baby mamas and baby dad, you know, like all this kind of stuff. They wouldn't have had to worry with all that. And so I want to talk a moment for, um, about this book that a guy named Guy Brandon wrote, and it's called Just Sex. And it's really talking about the cost of, uh, really, what this mindset of, oh, I can sleep with whoever I want and it's okay. Like this, this idea in our world today of, it doesn't matter, I can do whatever I want. So he goes into saying that, you know, because I think a lot of the world thinks that if you're just two consenting adults, then it doesn't affect anybody else. It's us that it's it's our business, so I'm, it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. But this book really shows the flaw in that thinking, because what we engage with in our sexual lives really affects all other areas, because we are part of a society. Just like the Israelites were part of a community even though we may not live in a community like the Israelites did and have the 12 tribes and have our land and all that kind of stuff, we still are a part of community. We are a part of society. And what the whole does really determines what happens. And so want you to know that even in this, that sin is not done in a vacuum. It's not just something that impacts one or two people. It impacts so many others. And I have this example here, and I want to be very careful with this because I don't know anybody's backstory. I don't know where you've come from, and I don't know what you've walked through. But just to give an example of how this thinking can flaw and cause so much um, devastation, because if you think about a marriage, and you think about that covenant that was made, It was to be between a man and a woman. And so if an affair happens, I have here a married man, but it could be either side. So, but if there's an affair that happens and they already have a family, what devastation that brings into the family. Because now there's betrayal. There's a a break in the covenant. There's a break in that promise to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer. I know those are things that we say in our marriages now, but it's a covenant that's being made. And when we think about, oh, well, I just want to go do what I want to do, it affects other people. Divorce and just that break is such a, I think, a dig at God's covenant because marriage is the one thing that is that we have on this earth, I think, to really display the love of Jesus and his commitment to us. And so Guy Brandon talks about how the more partners a person has, the less likely they are to be able to create a lasting relationship He says that people who cohabitate, so they live together before they're married, 80% will be divorced if they end up getting married. If they cohabitate and have children, so if they're not married and they're living together and they have children, within five years, they usually are not living together anymore. And so what that does to that child, they then are from a broken home. They have to go back and forth between, oh, I'm gonna spend this weekend with my mom, I'm gonna spend this weekend with my dad, I'm gonna be there for Christmas with this parent, and then Easter with this parent, and it's a constant back and forth. Can you imagine the instability that is in that child's life then? Because two people said, it doesn't matter what I do. God wants a strong society He wants strong relationships, and he wants healthy families to be able to display what a godly kingdom looks like here on this earth. And that happens through family. It happens in community. And God's ways are wonderful. And he knows what he's talking about when he's telling them not to have sex with all of these other people. And so if, if you have messed up in this area, there is forgiveness, there is repentance, there is a fresh start. And so don't come under condemnation, don't come under shame, because that is from the enemy and I will not stand for that. Walk in the newness of who the Lord has created you to be when you ask for forgiveness. And walk in his ways. Because really, obeying the laws were only going to help the Israelites and they're only going to help us. It was going to keep them healthy, it was going to keep them with hopefully being more emotionally stable. God wants his people to live in healthy conditions. And so all of these laws were about their protection. It was about looking after them. And I know our world today would read that and be like, that's ridiculous. Are you kidding me? But when we abide by this, I just think, I've, I've, um, there's a story that's just coming to my mind right now that um, a guy in Montana um, and his name just left me, SBS. Um, oh well, doesn't matter his name, nope, um, Ron, Ron and Judy Smith, thank you, so uh, he talked about how they counsel a lot of people even before they get married, and he said that he has, has so many stories about people who even they don't and for the world, this will seem so extreme, but they don't hold hands. They don't like, and it's for a period of time before marriage, not throughout their whole courtship or anything, but if they abstain from those kind of physical things before marriage, he said, you, if you could only hear the testimonies of after they're married, how strong their marriage is, how much they are in love with the Lord. And I'm like, if only we would go by God's commands, not just because it's something we can't do. And I know for me, when I first read through, well, even when I was young and thinking about the 10 Commandments, I'm like, that's just a bunch of lists of things I can't do. God is no fun. But now, thank God, I am older and wiser. And I'm like, what protection God was giving them in the 10 Commandments and the law It is such protection for the people, and it's protection for us. These are not outdated things that are only for the Old Testament, but these are things that we need to hold on to so that we live healthy, vibrant lives in abundance of God's love. And if and when marriage comes, that it is glorious, and that is filled with God and His ways. And so, Lord, I thank you. I thank you for these laws that you've given and how you are constantly protecting us. You are constantly protecting the Israelites and you are still constantly protecting us. Lord, may we see the beauty of your ways and not just the cannot do's. That we see that you are for us and not against us, just like you were for the Israelites. God, protect our hearts and our minds. Protect our relationships, Lord. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. Okay. How you all doing? We've got about 15 more minutes before it's supposed to be a break. So, do you want to need to stand up for a moment? That's yep. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay. I want to move into another... Uh, chunk of, I guess, topic. Yeah, just going to get into it. (laughs) I want to talk about this concept of secular and sacred, okay? Because um, being a part of, like, the Western world, a lot of people understand this distinction. But I want to go into a little bit more of this, okay? And so holiness, which I said yesterday, Holiness and sacred are interchangeable. Those are words that can be used either or. And so holiness is a worldview because it's sacred, just like secularism is a worldview. And if we look at uh, this word secular, really it is derived from a Latin word meaning relating to an age or a period. And so secularism is about looking at the material world and resisting any religious explanations. So if you even think about, uh, if you were in school and taught evolution, that is like this big bang theory and the world was created. It takes God out of the picture completely. And so it removes the need for God in anything and really explaining where we came from. We aren't, I mean, we are made up of, bless you. We are made up of atoms and But it wasn't that we were just formed and we're here. Like, the Word of God tells us that the Lord knit us together in our mother's wombs. And so this whole concept of secular versus sacred, I want to go into a little bit more of this. And so holiness or sacred as a worldview says that the universe is governed by the sovereign Lord. So we know this because you are sitting in these seats, or if you don't know, I'm going to tell you now. The world is governed, the universe is governed by God. He was the one that created it. He was the one that is sustaining it. And so when we as human beings stand in the presence of God, then we really are reduced to nothingness because it's like being next to the sun. You cannot stand next to holiness and be the same. And so this is like Job, when you all read that last week and he was asking God questions and you know he just had to come and say, okay, God, you are God. And no matter what, I'm gonna trust you. I'm gonna follow you. And so the sacred refers to the qualities of holy that really confront us as humans, but they remind us of our humanness. And so it really should create an awe and a fear of the Lord. And so even if we think about, you know, Moses on Mount Sinai and well, even with what we read in Leviticus about how the glory of the Lord like fell down in front of them like this fear and this awe that, that we should have before the Lord. And I'm not gonna say that it's, I, I sort of struggle with the like, God is my homie. I know that those church used to be a big thing. And, um, and I, I want, I, I know that God is my friend. I know that he is like so good, but I also wanna have this fear of the Lord that there is a reverence, that there is a respect, that there is honor where honor is due. And so, I, I just, I waver on that because I'm like, I want to see, him. I know he is my friend, I know he is for me, he is there, but I also want to walk in reverence and all of who he is. And so, if you have one of those shirts, it's okay. Just for me, I'm like, I... I struggle with that because I think we've, we've lost a lot of the fear of the Lord. That we're like, oh yeah, God's going to, he's okay with what I do. And even if he's not, he'll forgive me and we'll be okay. And I think a lot of times we, it is that greasy grace. I've heard that like, that grace where it's like, I can sin and God will forgive me and it'll all be okay. And that's, I think, a, a, an abuse of grace and an abuse of what uh, Jesus did for us. And so, and this whole concept of holiness is really embracing what God instituted and living it out the best way we know how. And we will sin, but it's not that it is deliberate and it's defiant, but it is accidental, and then we go and we ask for forgiveness. And so when we are thinking about this concept of secular and sacred in this and these writings there was no distinction there was no separation because it was all unto the Lord every aspect of their life was unto the Lord and so this separation was adopted into the church Uh, really because of Greek thinking and you will learn more about Greek thinking hopefully as you get into um, prophets and late prophets especially and so I'm not going to go into a whole lot of that but just know that that was not always that wasn't how the Lord set it up there wasn't that there was this oh I can go over here and be in the secular world and it'd be okay and then I can go be sacred and holy and it'd be okay over here There was never supposed to be that separation. It was always unto the Lord. And so when we think about secular versus sacred, secularism really says that this life is all there is, that they want to live as long as possible because this is all there is in life. And then secularism sees an imagined state or society with great suffering or injustice as the future. So thinking that right now is the best it's going to be on this earth. That how we're living now is what it is. is—that That's as good as it's going to get. And for me, that seems a little bit like, I don't want to live that way. (laughs) I don't want to think that this is all there is to life. And so if we look at the sacred, it says that we are living in light of eternity And that God has placed eternity in our hearts. And sacred says that death is merely the gateway to an eternal life and living in abundance. And the sacred longs for Jesus to return and usher in new heavens and a new earth where we will dwell with God forever, where there will be no death, no sin, no pain or injustice. All of those things will be gone. because I I don't want to live in a world where there is drug addiction, where there is human trafficking, where there is constant death. I don't want to live in a world like that forever. I want to know that something greater is coming. But I want to present to you that there has been a lot of compromise with secularism throughout the generations. If we look at even from Moses until about 200 years ago, sacred times were these times that were set apart for God. And so sacred spaces were to be inhabited by by holiness. And so if we think about the tabernacle and the temple, these are examples of, that, those holy places. And so even in Christian tradition, we have rituals that, you know, Sunday morning going to church and then you had baptism, communion, all of these celebrations that are rituals that are really reestablishing this aspect of holiness in our lives. And so the church really uh, abided by these for, I've, well, I hope we still do, but I think that they have come into really um, being compromised. Because, you know, even thinking about going to church, because I, I was raised in the church. I, when, I can remember being five and six years old even, And we went to Sunday school in the morning, then we went to big church, you know, where everybody came together. And then Sunday night we went back and it was called Training Union, so you had an hour there, and then you went to church again. That was four hours on Sunday where I was in church. Wednesday night we had church where it was like you went into a class and you were learning about the Lord and you were you know, doing all these things with the church, with your community there. In the last, well, especially since COVID hit, but um, but even in the last, like, I think 10 years, maybe, I, like I've traveled around a lot and I've gone to different churches and I've noticed that Sunday school isn't really a, a big thing anymore. Like, my church still has Sunday school, but if you go to like a mega church or something, very rarely will you find that they have a smaller group setting in the mornings. You go to, you go to like your main service and then you go home. And I'm going to propose that that is a way that we are settling for the secular. Because what are we doing with that time? Like, even my church now doesn't have Sunday night service anymore. Like, we, we've we gone through a couple of pastors, and then when, especially during COVID, it was like you had your Sunday morning, and that was it. And we just have not gone back to Sunday night worship. And so what are we doing with that time? A lot of times I'm doing stuff around the house, or... Yeah, I couldn't really even tell you what I'm doing with that time. But it's not time set apart for the Lord anymore. So we are slowly, I think, coming into being more like the world when we remove those sacred times from our lives. And so when we think about, and it's not that we go to Sunday school just because, oh, I want to be sacred and I want to be holy and that's why I got to do that, but it's a time to be in communion, to be in fellowship with one another. I even think about intercession and worship and just all the times that. We could, we could continue to be in fellowship with the Lord, but we choose not to. And I think one of the, not one of the main reasons I've stayed in missions, but like one of the things that I love about missions is starting my week with worship. And I always think if I went back to a normal nine to five job, I wouldn't have that anymore. I mean, yes, I could create it on my own, but there's something about coming together with people and worshiping the Lord. And I don't want to continue to see us compromise. And it could, you know, I'm using Sunday school as an example, but are we compromising our time with shows we're watching, with music we're listening to, with movies that we're watching. Like, whether it's, you know, R-rated or not. Like, I like to watch home remodeling shows, but I'm like, okay, I, I can spend an hour doing that, or I could spend an hour reading the Word, or I could spend an hour communicating with a friend and praying with them. And I'm like, what's gonna better, like, edify my spirit? And so I just wanna present that I think a lot of times, even in our downtime, we think, I deserve this. Like, oh, I, I've worked really hard. I deserve just to do nothing. And it's not that, I don't wanna be legalistic and be like, every moment of your day has to be filled with the Lord. That's not it, but it's all our heart posture. It's what are we doing this for? and I'm not saying to go through every hour or every minute of your day and be like, okay, am I doing this for the Lord? Am I doing this for the Lord? And be, be get overwhelmed with it because that's not, that's not my heart and I don't want you to hear that. But even taking like, you know, looking at your schedule. Okay, what do I allot a lot of time to? And then start that way. What, what is this unto? What is it doing for my spirit? What is it doing for my relationship with the Lord? I know for myself, I've just, throughout the years, being in missions, have, you know, before I could watch an R-rated movie and it wouldn't bother me. And now I, I can't stand to watch R-rated movies and really even PG-13 because there really are now. But... Um, But I just, I came to the conclusion, I was like, I don't want to fill my mind with that stuff anymore. And it wasn't like, oh, I'm just not going to watch already movies because, but I really started to contemplate chunks of my time where I was, I was devoting time and what I wanted to devote to holiness and unto the Lord. And so I encourage you to look at your lives And look at the ways that you are spending your time because time is something that is so valuable you never get back. And so what are we doing with our time? So to sort of run through, I sort of got on a tangent. (laughs) Sorry, not sorry. Um, (laughs) But... um, really understanding this whole concept of holiness and being sacred. It means being set apart. And if we go into the world and we call ourselves a Christian, but they can't tell a difference between us, then what are we doing? So be set apart. Be holy. Choose holiness. So in, I'm trying to like get back into this here now. In Leviticus, the most holy place was set apart in the tabernacle. And so we can have a real danger, I think, of becoming too exclusive, of thinking, well, this is, I've got to be, I've got to live in holiness, so let me not do anything. And then we're we're no good at all. Because holiness needs to be motivated by a hunger to seek God. So just like me saying that I didn't want to watch R-rated movies anymore, it wasn't just because I was like, well, that's bad, and I don't need to do that, so I'm going to Cut that off. But it was like, man, God, I don't, wanna, I don't wanna like let my eyes see that stuff anymore. I don't wanna put that into my spirit. Because really when we think about secular, it is sin. And sin is what defiles us. And God hates sin. That's what all these laws are about, is protecting them from sin. And so the New Testament has a lot to say about how we live because the New Testament challenges us to live in the world, but not be of the world. And so I think we've really struggled with this a lot because how do we do it? How do we still be relevant, but be holy? And how do we make a difference without being so far removed from, from the world and what's happening. And so we can see where monks and nuns, they tried to do this. They were like, okay, well, let's just separate ourselves so that we can remain holy. But I don't think that's it. We need to learn how to incorporate holiness into our lifestyle and so that we can go out into the world and make a difference. I mean, I know when I went to Thailand, the monks, you can't even go and touch them. If you're a female, you can't talk to them. So what good is that? I mean, <laughs> what good are they doing? I'm not going they're not doing any good, but at the same time, if, if they can't even communicate with women, then that's half of the population that they can't even Im- impact. And so how are we going to incorporate sacredness and holiness into our daily lives when we don't have all of these laws that we have to go by? And so I want to say that really one of the ways that we can begin to do this is through art. And it's a way that we can explore the glory of God. And I have here as music is one of those ways, but think about hobbies that you enjoy. We talked about that yesterday. How can that be unto the Lord? How can that be something that is a, a sacred time? If you're knitting And you're like, okay, God, I want to worship you while I do this. It doesn't have to be that you're just, okay, this is my hobby. This is my downtime. But how can you make that unto the Lord? And so really, music is even a way that we can open up our our hearts and our minds to the Lord. Because if you think about it, a lot of the hymns, and I know we don't well, I grew up with hymns, but even now in church, we don't really sing a lot of hymns anymore. But a lot of the hymns were, were written because they were going through suffering. They were going through hard times, and they were relying on the Lord, on His goodness, on His holiness, to see them through. And so I just want to encourage you to really... Um, I'm going to play a song, and I want you to think about how you can begin to implement holiness into your lives in a greater and greater way. And if you already are in certain ways, then praise the Lord. Like, I'm so thankful. But I think there's always areas where we can grow and we can we can be greater and greater sanctified because we're always in this process of sanctification. And so I wanna play this song and I just encourage you to, um, to think through that aspect of holiness, but also worship the Lord and do that however seems right and good for you. If that means you want to stand up, stand up. If that means you want to dance, dance. Whatever it looks like for you.